Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we're joined by Phil Lewis and Claire Croft, the dynamic team behind Corporate Punk, sharing a common mission to unleash the potential of individuals and teams within organizations to drive long-term commercial success. Corporate Punk champions adaptability and believes that most organizations possess untapped ideas and talent. They work toward unlocking this potential through open, direct, and compassionate conversations, focusing on people over job titles. Their change services revolve around a human-first approach using diagnostics, planning, consultancy, and coaching to drive fast and effective change. Claire and Phil bring a wealth of experience and expertise to the table. Their strategic approach and commercial focus are a breath of fresh air, and they are known for challenging their clients in a way that is respectful, energizing, and lighthearted. If you're looking for speakers who can help you unlock the potential of your people and achieve long-term commercial success, Claire Croft and Phil Lewis are the perfect choice. Good morning and welcome to Conflict Manage, Phil and Claire. It's so nice to have you on the show. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Good to this, see you, Mary. Nice to see you. This is the first time I've been interviewing a duo, so I think this is going to be a lovely conversation today. Well, we'll see about lovely. <laughs> We're talking about conflict at work. We'll keep it real. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And so even though we've got the two of you, I'm not going to let you off the hook because I love talking about first jobs and sort of the trajectory of how you got into working with organizations. So Claire, let's start with you. What was the first job you ever had? Well, my first job was at the age of 13 doing ironing for my mom's friends, but I doubt that's the one you really want me to talk about. So <laughs> when I um, when I left university, my very first job was as a trainee criminal psychologist in a high security prison in the UK. And I spent that time working with rapists, murderers, serial killers, paedophiles. So um, a really gentle foray from out from university into the world of work. Oh my goodness, from ironing to uh, that environment. <laughs> wow, yeah. that is, what made you choose going into that line of work? So back in the early 90s in the UK, there was this crime show called Cracker that had a forensic uh, criminal psychologist. And that was what I wanted to do. From the minute I watched that, I did psychology at uni and I worked in, um, we have a thing called bail hostels in the UK. So when somebody gets arrested, they can be put on bail, but sent to a hostel to reside. And I did work there. And I was just fascinated by crime all through my sort of mid to late teens and then was very lucky to get an apprenticeship at this prison in their psychology department. I'm sure that taught you a lot about conflict. Yes, and, and worryingly, some real similarities in the world of work as well between prison life and work life. But yeah, learned a lot about conflict. And probably just about human nature, because no matter where we are in the world or what kind of job we have, uh, whether it's in a prison or outside of a prison, we're dealing with people. And so exactly. I, I am an essentialist. I think there, while there's cultural differences and background differences, there is something about the human experience. And when you're around a lot of people, you'll find these different personalities and types and that we encounter. Yeah. And people are infinitely complicated, but yeah. we treat each other as very simple. Right. Absolutely. All people. Absolutely. Yeah. Phil, what about you? Did you start off the world of work with ironing? No. <laughs> I I I was trying to just think then about the last time I actually ironed something, but that's a separate podcast. <laughs> that's a whole um, other podcast. <laughs> that's a different podcast. So so no, I mean my sort of first foray into my career was actually in direct marketing. So so I found myself into the in the sort of advertising and marketing industry very, very quickly and did about 10 years there, which is actually where Claire and I first met, was in our last respective advertising and marketing agency role. It's an it's a sort of interesting how you start your career in something like marketing and then end up in something like change management and looking at things like conflict at work and I think the my career journey can be summed up in this way which is to say I started off being interested in why people 
in helping people solve the problems that they've got. So if you're in the marketing industry, it's about, well, I need to promote this product and we have this amount of money and what do we do with it? And where do we allocate that money and all the rest of it? And, and I just became really interested over time in one fact, which is I seem to be surrounded by incredibly talented, incredibly engaged people who woke up every day wanting to do really good things in the place of work that they were in. And also we had these clients that we worked with as well, who were also talented and passionate and engaged. And yet everybody concerned seemed to find it incredibly difficult to actually make the progress that they wanted to make on the issues that they were dealing with. And it was this sort of recurring theme. It's like, well, how can we consistently build places of work that are so much less than the sum of their parts? And so for me, my sort of career divides into two halves because the first half was kind of working out that was the problem. And then the second half was going, no, actually there's a, that we need to try and find the answer to that question, that question around why is it we're not, we don't bring the best out of each other at work, you know? So, and, and that got me into the world that I'm in now. That's really interesting. So Phil, when you think about the different places that you've worked, what was the best experience that you had with a colleague, a boss, or an organization? And what was it that was so good about it for you? I have a sort of belief that everything good I have done in my career comes from three women that I worked with in the first three or four years of my career. So I was really, really lucky because I found two bosses and a sort of associate boss in a row in my first couple of roles who saw potential in me and went, you know what we're going to do is take this quite geeky kid who's got way too many sort of sharp edges and who thinks he's a lot smarter than he actually is and thinks he's a lot more experienced than he actually is. And through a combination of patience and tough love, if you want to call it that, we're going to just help knock the edges off this and turn it into something. So I worked with people who really inspired and motivated my performance over time and were really willing to not only sort of tolerate who I was, but actually understand that there were good things trying to come out. And so for me, that, that experience, that was very, very formative. It was a, I was so lucky to have good mentors early on in my career. And I would say to this day, I think very fondly of all three of them. And I still am in touch with two of them. So that's been the absolute best experience, I think. That is wonderful. I mean, mentorship is so powerful when people see us. And as you said, they see all of you, not this idealized self of you, but as you said, your rough edges and still wanting you, right? That's a, that's belonging, right? We want to be seen mm. and still included and still wanted and yet grow. So Phil, what, what like specific things did they do that encouraged you to, to grow and develop and to who you are today and the professional that you are? Well, we're in a, a conversation about conflict, I guess, and we'll get to that. And I would say the thing that really strikes me more than any other was their willingness to, uh, in a quite a supportive way, but nevertheless throw me completely into the deep end in quite conflict-ridden situations. So I would have been about 22, 23 at the age in which I started dealing with procurement departments of some very big supermarkets here in the UK. And those people are, let's just say, very assertive people who know how to defend the interests of their companies. And we used to walk into meetings with people who are a very early age, you know, I was very young. I mean, I was a young 23 year old for all sorts of reasons as well. And they would literally their opening line in negotiation would be to just laugh and push your proposal back across the table at you. And so walking into those kind of situations very, very early in my career, and I can't say it's made me into the world's best negotiator now. That's not how I've developed. And Claire would tell you I am not the world's best negotiator now. <laughs> but I would say being put in a situation which was outside of my comfort zone by people who said, I believe you can deal with this. I believe you have it in you 
that you've you you can you can manage this situation well will give you some support will give you some care and attention along the way but i believe fundamentally you've got what it takes to be able to survive and thrive through this that was really empowering and actually just in a very practical sense to actually get the experience of how organizations use conflict to get their own agenda through i think was was very very instructive at a very early age it's really interesting because when we think about what it takes to be a good management manager or boss and some people of course are micromanagers and it's destructive for a variety of ways but as you pointed out that if someone is micromanaging you, they're not going to, first of all, they're not trusting you and they're not going to push you and they're not going to believe in you that you can grow because they have to be controlling everything, right? It just really just sucks the development and the life out of your workers, but rather being generous and and saying, yes, you can, even though you don't know that you can, but you can, as you do it, you become competent, right? Sometimes that's how our competencies come through the actual practice of doing it. And how wonderful to have people who would invest in you like that. Well, they were willing to let me fail. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the that was the long and the short of it. Mm-hmm. And and I suppose oddly enough, being being willing to let, you know, or being it being okay for me to fail, but then putting some guardrails in place that minimized the opportunity for me to fail. Right was a really really important thing so so you know i was conscious i had responsibility and i was conscious i had to navigate through things in the right way but i was also conscious that i wasn't in a situation where my job was on the line if something didn't pan out because i had a boss that i could rely on to pick things up and move things forward in the right way and i just think everything i've seen in the world of work since then and that claire and i continue to deal with in the world that we're in now points me to how rare that was Mm -hmm. you know I was really lucky to experience that I think absolutely Claire what about you what's the best experience you've had with a a person an organization um boss colleague so I the best thing for me about starting life working life I should clarify in a prison was it made me fearless of authority because if you can sit with somebody who's killed five people and have a conversation, you kind of figure you can sit with somebody who's got an Armani suit on and earns, you know, obscene amounts of money and have a conversation. And when I went into the world of work, I didn't have that sense of I shouldn't talk to anybody. And I, as a result of that, struck up a bond relatively quickly with a head of marketing when I did finally go into marketing and, and I would just chat and just find out what was going on in his world. And he had the good grace to just engage, give me that time and not shoot me down and tell me to go away and that he had bigger and better things to do. And I think the connection that that created between us, he very quickly gave me a responsibility for the business to business advertising. Now, bearing in mind, I'd never done marketing properly before. I'd only done the graduate scheme of this company. And he just gave me a 14 million pound budget, which, you know, not that many years ago was I in my mid twenties was, was a lot of, a lot, a lot of money. And he, he believed that I would be responsible. He believed that I would come to him and have, the conversations we needed to have in order to make best use of that budget in terms of managing the um managing the agencies that we worked with and experiencing somebody trust you in that way with that kind of money when a sort of similar to Phil you know people are normally quite protective of that kind of status and he would just let me go off and explore it for myself and half the time I didn't really know what I was doing but I had somebody who I could always go and have the honest conversation with and just sit down and go this happened today I don't really know what that meant and he'd be like okay fine and we'd talk it through so experiencing kindness and trust from somebody really really senior and somebody who was willing to make time for somebody who was really relatively very junior that for me set me up to realize what I wanted to be like 
as a manager. And I, I always feel quite proud of one of the things I was rubbish at a lot of stuff when I had a job. But the one thing I know I wasn't rubbish at is I was a good manager. And 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 it was his leadership of what good management looks like that enabled me to sort of model the the ways and the behaviors. So, you know, open, honest dialogue. And again, in our work today, a rarity. Mm-hmm. You know, there's more handbags being danced around in the world of work than I, I ever thought would be possible. And a lot of our work is actually about helping people to have that open honest dialogue be it positive neutral or negative let's just get it out on the table and work with what's really present in this situation in this business in this dynamic that's really powerful and it's interesting that you know aspects of you and phil your your stories of these powerful experiences are similar of a good mentor isn't someone who just says here here you go and then leaves right because sometimes we find those those hands-off leaders and that's very disconcerting and because we mm-hmm. want to know we want to be able to have those honest dialogues to be able to say i don't know what's going on or i made a mistake or was this a mm-hmm. mistake and having somebody again this gift of time mm-hmm. and when leaders give the gift of time what they know a good leader knows is they're going to get it back in spades right yeah, exactly. it's like you it's like it's like preventative healthcare that's what i think of my work as with with conflict resolution you're going to be paying for it somewhere. If you pay up front by dealing with it, investing in your mm. people and empowering them, you're going to get it back in dividends. Because if you don't catch it and, and you let it go mm. on and on and on, then you're really going to pay the price. Yes. And so time, you can either spend a little bit up front doing it well, empowering your people and training them and speaking into them, or you're going to be endlessly dealing with the malady that has occurred in your organization because nobody is dealing with you said the elephant in the room the elephants in the room yeah multi you know you raise a point there but my my personal soapbox I think autonomy needs to be rebranded as abdication mm-hmm. autonomy has become this word that is actually just an excuse for poor leadership and poor management just do your jobs mm-hmm. that time is not being invested but what always blows my mind is managers and leaders haven't got time to set their employees up for success, but they've got all the time in the world to clear up the mess that ensues as a result of those employees not being set up to succeed. And it's like our relationship with time at work is somewhat distorted, I feel, at the moment. Yeah, oh, I absolutely agree. So I'm interested in your organization, your company, which is called Corporate Punk. Can you tell us, it's a great name. I've been to your website. It's beautiful and it's minimalism. I really love it. So you guys should go out there and check it out. Tell us about what you're up to, what it's about and how it got started. So the name Corporate Punk actually has been knocking around for about 13, 14 years now. Our business is about nearly a decade old, but the name actually predates the business. And then when we set up, racking our brains going, what shall we call this business, which needs to be about unlocking the natural talent and energy and potential of other businesses, you know, kicking around all these names. And it was like, ah, yes, <laughs> we had this name idea three years ago that that might actually work. So the idea of punk is about the unlocking of kind of natural energy. It's also about the idea of three chords and the truth. So, so not so much, I think the danger with punk is people can think it's about coming over, coming in, kicking over the bins, being rebellious, all that sort of stuff. And there is that dimension to it sometimes, but I would say it's more about energy and it's also more about actually working on the real stuff that needs working on, that's holding organizations back from where they want to go. So our website, which you referenced, the idea behind that website is that there are no bells and whistles. We don't need a logo. We have one font. We have one colorway. Everything is sort of stripped back almost to a point where it looks like it's slightly glitchy. Because the idea is if we're having the really direct, honest, three chords in the truth style conversation that's that's going on, then we don't need all of the bells and whistles and we don't need all the kind of stuff that other consultancies rely on, which is, you know, fancy brands and all that kind of thing. So our work now, 
we're a coaching, consulting and training practice. And the application of our work, if, if the ultimate end goal is help organizations remove the barriers that stand in the way of the progress that they're seeking to make, our work focuses on change and transformation because that tends to be the time when organizations need to affect some sort of big shift in the performance that they get out of their people. So an organization might be going through merger and acquisition. It might be going through a big restructure. It might be going through a complete change in leadership, might be opening a new office in a new market, whatever it looks like, there's some sort of change in state that that organization is looking to achieve. So our approach is grounded in a really simple idea, which is you already have all the skills, all the talent, all the energy, all the passion that you need in order to bring this change about in your organization. You're just getting in your own way, right? So, so our job is work with organizations to find what those barriers are and remove those barriers. And I just want to say two very quick things about that. The first thing is that when we're talking about finding and removing barriers, I don't want people to hear the word barriers and think we mean human beings, right? There are people in organizations who can present as being active blockers of change. It is not the case, though, that we need to deal with the blockers that it's the human beings, the problem. Oftentimes what is happening is there is conflict which is not being surfaced in the organization that needs to be surfaced and had, and then actually either harmony is reached or a different kind of solution is reached or whatever that looks like. So I don't want people to hear the word we remove barriers and we're doing what consultants do, which is to go in and like start cutting heads. We don't do that at all. It's about much more sophisticated work than that. The second thing is I don't want people to hear words like corporate punk and all the rest of it and to think we're in the world of radical candor. Weirdly, even though we're called corporate punk and we're all about direct conversation and all the rest of it, there's a sensitivity to how we work with organizations that it's really important to us that we we continue to, to embrace. For me, it's about being able to say, What's the real conversation that needs to happen here around the blockers that an organization is experiencing? But how do we enter that conversation in a way that everybody can hear, everybody can participate in? And how do we ultimately bring about change with people in an organization rather than doing it to them? So that's the work. And we work around the world with lots of different organizations and we've won plenty of awards for change and uh, and building cultures of innovation and things like that. But but in the end, it's really simple stuff. Well, to the extent human beings are simple, it's simple stuff, which is you're getting in your own way. We're just going to help you work out how, and then we're going to help you work out how to stop doing that in effect. Gosh, you guys are just see, singing my love language. I agree with all of that. I mean, because so many times, right, it's this person is the problem. We need to get rid of the person. And yeah. or because of conflict management is the person is the problem. And we get so tied up in personalities or they are the barrier. And then we can't solve it because we don't solve people. People aren't to be solved. And no. it's inappropriate at work to think I'm going to change this person, right? Mm. Um, probably mm. anywhere. But but we can look at behaviors, behaviors yeah. that are difficult for me. Um, may not be difficult for somebody else. I can speak about that. We can look at organizational structures that are not working. We can look at all, all that goes into what are the barriers. And I love that language of barriers because they're multifaceted and it is not synonymous with the person, but rather if a person is behaving in a certain kind of way, why is that behavior being allowed? Why has nothing been done with it? Why has it not been addressed? If it is indeed impending the forward motion of the work culture, because the work is for everyone. And so I love mm. that speak that inclusive language of let's speak to everyone because mm. everyone is here. And if we want to take advantage of the diversity of our work culture, then we need to think about not everybody hears the same things. Not everything is impo as important to everybody else. And so I love, gosh, everything that you said, sign me up. I I'm on board. <laughs> well, it's it's the, the thing that is challenging for the leadership teams who work with us is 
that they have to start with themselves Mm -hmm. and the conditions they've created or not for change to be possible. And an understanding, it's got nothing to do with systems and processes, but quite often when you are starting to try and drive change, you have to look to the past Mm -hmm. and acknowledge the impact past attempts at change have had on people. You know, we have a client right now where there is out and out organizational trauma at play because of a previous heavily botched restructure of an organization that was very much like the hatchet job, just cut people and cut them out. So you can't just talk about what you want people to do now. You have to help them heal and be able to lean into what might be a new future state. And you know the narratives that whirl around organizations have got nothing to do with reality half the time, but it, you can't stick your fingers in your ears and go, la, 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 they're not there, you know? So for leaders, it's that slowing down to connect with the current reality, and then we can help people go somewhere new with you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so very interested in everything that you're saying, which is very people-centric work environment. And if we want to move forward, you have to look at what happened in the past. It's mm. it's inhuman to say, forget it. And we're, we're going forward. We're not doing that mm. anymore. And you're like, but that was done to me or my BFF at work or whatever happened. Yeah. And I'm just supposed to suck it up and pretend. We don't want people pretending. Right. Of course, we we can't make people forgive and we can't we're not in that business, but we can address we can do our part to address what has come forward, listen to real issues and real hurt and then move forward. And it's somebody mm-hmm. somebody's decision then whether they're going to hold on to grudges or, or whatever they're going to do. But we mm-hmm. can treat people humanely. Yeah, there was some fascinating research done out of Bournemouth University in the UK a few years ago which basically said organizations store trauma in the way that human beings store trauma. And, and, you know, if you read something like the body keeps the score, which has done very well as a book over the last few years, you know, we all, and I think we all intuitively know, and we know from our experience walking around the world and friends and family and people in our network, that people have traumatic experiences and we bury them and, and all of that. And the organization in some sense is just a collection of human beings, right. And collection of human beings interacting with each other and, I think one way of helpful way of thinking about an organization is it's just a set of conversations that are happening on an ongoing basis between a bunch of people. So it seems to make sense that organizations would have a kind of collective memory of bad things that have happened to them in the past. And then they, those memories surface in the present. So, you know, you see that in a really obvious way when you start talking about change and there is this thing about people don't like change absolutely a nonsense there's plenty of examples of change that we all genuinely enjoy in our lives a haircut is a change that we all enjoy well mostly provided it doesn't (laughs) get messed up right so many different ways we enjoy we enjoy change in life what people don't enjoy is having change done to them and they don't enjoy feeling as though they have no autonomy or more specifically that they have all the responsibility and none of the power they don't enjoy ambiguity they don't Mm -hmm. enjoy conflict being left unaddressed just to fester and all of that's what they don't enjoy and yet we wrap it in this idea that people don't like change not actually true you know we have a responsibility we believe as change workers in organizations to go into businesses and and go what's actually really going on dynamically within this business And then through the language of what a board wants to hear and what we need to do from a strategy and commercial point of view and everything else, how do we marry the human and the business, you know, so that we're, we're, we're building good businesses. We're doing it through the actually accurate lens, which is the human beings that work within them, which is all about, you know, how then you surface and address trauma and all that sort of stuff can come up through that work, but it's quite, can be quite radical kind of work sometimes, you know? Absolutely. So how do you, how have you, either one of you answer this, when you think about your work experiences, how have you dealt with difficult situations that you've had with either a boss or a colleague? What happened insofar as you feel like sharing and and how did you address that difficult conflict? 
the thing that's going to take the time here is picking one. (laughs) (laughs) I'll go first. So I, I was being bullied by somebody, um, a male who was about 20 years older than me. And he just did not like me. And he would lie about things I hadn't done or he'd lie about things I had done. You know, there was just lots of toxicity. And my first start point was to think about what might be going on for him and how might I be showing up in a way that isn't helping him to see me in a positive light. And I think one of the things that Phil and I are very similar in but however it's happened, we are two people who will always ask ourselves, first off, what role are we playing in this? And that comes from the implicit understanding that all relationships are co-created, right? So I was trying to evaluate myself. I identified a couple of things that I might be doing and course corrected, didn't make any sense, didn't, didn't make any difference, sorry. And so in the end, I decided to sit down and have a conversation with him and lay out what I was experiencing. But from this start point, which was my intent in having the conversation, which was that it really mattered to me that we could work well together because the outcome of how we worked would determine how successful the the overall department was. We were both responsible for membership of this organization. And so I had a really positive intent for talking to him because it had a business benefit for us to work well together. And then I laid out for him what I was experiencing. And then I just got curious and asked him, are you aware that this is, does this make sense to you that I would be experiencing this? And and how does it resonate with you? And what, if it does, can you help me understand what is going on for you that's leading to these behaviours? And he'd never been spoken to that way before. You know, and I think when you tell somebody you want to have a difficult conversation for a good reason, to get to a good outcome, my experience all throughout work is people will lean in if they trust that you're trying to get to somewhere better with them. If you just go in and sort of go, I can't believe you're doing all of these things. You're such an evil guy, right? Like the heckles are up and they're ready to attack. So for me, it's all about accepting I have a role to play in this because I do, because all relationships are co-created, not judging what they're doing, but trying to be as curious as possible about what might be going on for them. And then making sure that from the outset, both of us know that the reason behind this conversation is to try and achieve something positive for ourselves and for the business. And it took several conversations Mm. because the first time he laughed at me and just said, God, you just worry about everything. So I went again and I, what I was doing in the background is I let my manager know that I was trying to have these conversations because I felt I should try and deal with it directly. A, because that's how you grow, right? As a person in the world to work. B, it felt like the respectful thing to do to him. And C, if I'm really honest, I thought if I went to my boss and my boss tried to deal with it, it would just make things worse. So there was some self-protectionism going on there as well. But we got, we were never best buddies, right? It was never perfect, but the lying did stop and the unnecessary jibes did stop and we had a more productive relationship after it. A lot of what I do in my work is helping people how to have those difficult conversations. So much of it is communicating because if you go in and say, you've done this and you've done that, all of a sudden we're in some sort of argument. We're not in uh, any way where we're looking for a win-win, right? Yes, exactly. And in a work environment, a lot of times people participate in that magical thinking where we just want to cut the person out. They're the problem and they're just going to go away because they don't care. And they obviously Mm. aren't doing a good job and they're trying to make my life terrible. But if we can get past that to what's going to benefit me and what's going to benefit them and the organization and the blowback from everybody else is what can we find that's a win-win? And Mm. Claire, as you said, identifying that this is going to benefit the business, which is going to benefit us individually. So you're giving him some skin in the game. Like this is Mm. going to be to your benefit for us to work this out. Yeah. 
But it also exactly. takes, it takes a lot of courage and self-reflection to be able to have that kind of conversation. I was always raised to do the pain gain evaluation. And I was in a lot of pain. Like it was causing me anxiety. I was dreading going into work. And, and I just came down on the side of no conversation can make this worse. Hmm. I, I'm incapable of having such a bad conversation because I felt it was really bad what he was doing. And so for me, the angst of trying to address it was was high, but the awareness of the cost to me of not doing it was higher. So the pain gain ratio worked out. Again, though, it's that reflection, because a lot of times when we are in a toxic environment or relationship, we just it's a, it's so it can be overwhelming that we can't see the next. And what I love about conflict resolution and conflict management is that it's first and foremost empowering. We yeah. take the power back and say, okay, what you did, what am I going to do about it? And you look at your options. If I go to my boss, is that really going to help it? I have the best chance, it seems to me, to do this. But instead of this person is making me terrible for me to go to work, this person is negatively impacting me, and now it's up to that person to solve it, no, it's, it's up to you, right? And that's yeah. what I love about conflict management is that it says, no. I'm in charge of my own boundaries. I'm in charge of keeping mm -hmm. them. I'm in charge of making things better and seeking the help externally that I need. Like you said, telling your boss you're doing this or finding the resources, whatever it is, but we don't have to wait for somebody else. We can mm -hmm. make that change. Absolutely. And it's, it's, if nobody takes an action to try and make this better, what, what you're voting for is continued pain and potentially increased pain yeah. for yourself for well you know let's be honest sometimes for your family you take you know people at work take this stuff home yeah. and so it's like but inaction comes at quite high costs sometimes so yeah I think it, as long as you can get in that headspace that you believe there could be a positive outcome I don't think there's any point going into a conflict conversation if you just don't think this person is capable of change like you have to be open to seeing them differently seeing them beyond the behavior yeah. right and as you said I mean the first uh, really the, I think that one of the steps first steps of conflict resolution is empathy what is going mm. on for them and so mm. instead of thinking the bully sees something about me and they're targeting me because maybe there's a lack in me it's okay this is unprofessional behavior what's going on with them yeah. Why would they be acting this way? Because clearly that is not how adults treat one another with dignity and respect. So mm. what is going on with them? And yeah. all of it starts to change that narrative internally, reframing what's going on so that we can move into that space of, oh, well, maybe their mama loves them, even if I don't. So mm. maybe they're not all bad. Maybe there is something going yeah. on. That means we can go forward. Exactly. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Bill, what about you? Have you had any conflicts at work? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing for reasons that would take another podcast to explain. Um, so so the, funnily enough, just sitting here reflecting on that, listening to that, I was just reminded, by the way, of a truth that I learned a few years ago. Someone shared with me that I thought was, I carry with me to this day, which is all conflict is just growth trying to happen, which I thought was just a really beautiful kind of encapsulation of what conflict actually is kind of pointing towards the potential for a lot of the time but to give you an example from my own life and this is an example of conflict badly managed actually but I think there's some interesting stuff in it so corporate punk wasn't my first consultancy I had a consultancy previously which uh, I co-founded with somebody I should not have co-founded that business with him for all sorts of reasons but one of the things that characterized the relationship was a complete lack of willingness on my part to actually engage in any uncomfortable conversation at all about the functioning of that partnership. One of the things that um, Claire and I, when we're starting to get into questions of conflict at work, like to pose both to ourselves, but also to the people that we work with is, in not surfacing this conflict, who are you actually being kind to? It's a really interesting question because there can be an argument that surfacing conflict can be very kind. It has to be the kindest route to, you know, to dealing with somebody else. 
what is kind isn't always what is nice. Anyway, the point being that I wasn't doing a very good job in that relationship of bringing my truth in any way, shape or form, my concerns, whatever to the table in the belief that I, I think, I think unconsciously thinking I was being kind to myself, you know, mm-hmm. that actually I was just trying to avoid an uncomfortable set of feelings. Well, I don't think that that served anybody in that organization well. As a leader, there was just, you know, I was responsible for a sort of simmering pot of tensions that were just growing and growing between the two co-founders, or at least I was, you know, I'd co-created that situation. But then in the end, what happened was the whole thing just blew up. So I'm not sure that the conflict was ever going to be reconcilable. I'm not sure that there was actually a way forward for that partnership. But what I am sure of is I didn't handle it very well. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually sure that there could have been a much gentler landing for everybody and a much gentler landing for me. I ended up um, leaving that consultancy, selling out my shares for basically no money, literally no money whatsoever, just to get away from the situation. And you come back to this question around who are you being kind to? In the end, my lack of willingness to engage in that conflict was an act of cruelty to myself as much Mm -hmm. as anything else as well, Mm -hmm. because I ended up being financially, psychologically, uh, emotionally really punished by that situation. That taught me so much like I have learned so much from the mistakes that I've made in my career which have been many and various and I've carried that forward into my work now and again I don't prize myself as being someone who's a ninja at conflict I can struggle with it there are situations in which I can feel deeply uncomfortable in in communicating truth but I would say in the business partnership I'm in now, I think we do a better job of talking about what's really going on for us, probably as a direct result of what happened back there in my case. I'm absolutely determined not to let a situation like that happen again. And it also really connected me to, it's a very British thing, I think, avoiding conflict as well. I can't speak for the yeah. US in the same way, but very British, it can be a very male British thing as well, particularly. We we kind of feel like we can lack the emotional tools to kind of go there, I think, as as um as Brits and as men and boys, we're not we're not taught to do this stuff well. But for me, having had that really brutalizing and brutal experience just became a springboard to go, no, a lack of willingness to engage in conflict is a huge barrier to progress for the human and a huge barrier to progress for the organization. So a really terrible experience, but one for me that actually just so much good came from it in the end, in terms of the work we do now and my own flourishing in my career, you know? Absolutely. I don't wish those terrible experiences on anyone, but we've all had them. And it is the case that there's so much to be learned is sometimes it can be so bad. It's like touching a hot stove. You're not Mm going to do that twice. And those, sometimes the harder, the lesson, the more we, we learn it because we don't want that again. We see, and, and as you did with a reflection of what you can do differently so that it doesn't happen again. I spent most of my life conflict averse and I don't love conflict now, but I am convinced I am convinced that if we're going to have healthy work environments, and I think that the work environment, everyone deserves a healthy work environment. Every single person Mm -hmm. from the part-time person to the CEO, everyone should be able to go to work and have a safe, a psychologically safe environment and where they're treated with dignity and respect. And I think that is like bare minimum. That's like human Mm -hmm. decency, but we want more than that, right? We want to flourish and that's Mm -hmm. how businesses grow, right? That's how you get engagement and creativity, but that takes intentional effort, right? Because mm. everything is going towards chaos. <laughs> That's, I mean, the dishes keep on piling up in my house. It's crazy because I do them, mm. but I, I wake up the next morning and kid has put some dishes out mm. and it takes sustained intentional effort by leadership and by everyone to do difficult things because mm. it's so much easier to have that hard conversation and it is psychologically difficult now, then you let that behavior go on for years or months. And I was just talking to somebody just yesterday, uh, somebody in their work environment who has gone through several bosses and allowed or enabled to have certain kinds of behaviors that are difficult for not only customers, but um, the workers. And 
And I say, well, what, what's going to happen now? How is it going to be dealt with? And the answer is it's not going to be dealt with. It'll just mm-hmm. be waited out until that person retires in like seven years. Mm-hmm. And I think how, why that's, it's unacceptable. Yeah. I think it's, what, I think it's unacceptable. But also well, at what in, commercial oh, cost, right? I mean, this is, it's like, I've seen a situation um, over the last two or three years where through the avoidance of a conversation that a CEO thought was a difficult conversation to let someone go who actually wanted to go. It was transpired. It transpired, but the CEO couldn't find a way into that conversation because he was so not wanting to feel uncomfortable, sat there with him in a meeting and forced him to total up the commercial cost of that conversation. It was about $850,000 by the time we stopped counting, Mm -hmm. at which point it's like, so how much money does your lack of willingness to embrace this momentary difficult conversation how much money are you willing to underwrite do we have to get to 1.7 million before the business case mm-hmm. is clear do you know what i mean you kind yeah. of get to, you kind of get to that point well, so a lack of ability to embrace conflict brings direct and quite severe commercial consequences sometimes absolutely it, it also drives some very questionable behaviors you know i mean i've borne witness to leaders and ceos briefing headhunters to headhunt people out of the business because they couldn't have the difficult conversation like that's not okay right right that's intentionally passing what you perceive to be a problem person onto another company it so it, it it it's not just the commercial impact it's like how it drives negative behaviors in the person that's feeling affronted by the it's it it just becomes so toxic so quickly I mean we talk to people when we do we do training on um we call it uncomfortable conversations and they come to it and they want this silver bullet by the end of this I'll have cracked it and the disappointment in their faces when we say to them it is a practice you know Phil and I are are older than you know a, a lot and we've been doing this for years and there is no comfort but there is there is an acceptance that it is uncomfortable. Yeah. It's weird. You end up being comfortable with the fact that it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And you just lean in because you know it's difficult, but you equally know if you are a person that believes in kindness and respect, like it is the kind and respectful thing to do for another human being to address conflict that you're experiencing. Absolutely. And I think about this person and I've seen in other organizations where nobody will tell them the truth and everyone's talking about Mm -hmm. them behind their back and they've hung that person out to dry. It's derision, Mm -hmm. right? And so not only are you not helping that person grow and thrive and giving them the possibility of changing, not only Mm -hmm. are you maybe even holding that person back, Phil, as you said, maybe they want to go or maybe they they would be better because maybe they're not good in this organization and everybody knows it, but maybe another organization. And so sometimes parting ways is the kind thing for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so I really do think if you are interested in treating people well, that means you tell them the hard things in a humane way. And that Mm -hmm. means you have to understand, leadership is all about people. It's the people business. If you don't want to be with people, if you don't want to treat them well, if you don't want to learn their communication style or how to actually communicate, not just say words, you should be doing something else. And mm-hmm. everybody benefits when we do this hard thing. And so I keep on coming back to the question to kind of know the answer to is why don't business owners do it? Because they can do hard things, right? Leaders do hard things all the time. They're smart. Mm-hmm. They're engaged. They got where they are for a reason. But the money right? The, the, the cost of $40 billion annually in the US or Gallup said mm-hmm. 1.3 trillion annually lost to toxic work environments and employers employees being disengaged. And I'm more interested in the human toil, the physical and psychological pain, not only to the person, but as you mentioned, Claire, to their families and to the communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, the loss is so hard to calculate the loss of innovation, if you have collaborative teams that work together, we don't know what wasn't developed. We don't know the loss of opportunity because these people can't talk together because they're not treated well or they don't feel mm. that sense. 
I'm really interested in your your question as to why aren't we good at this? I think it's fascinating. And and two thoughts spring up for me, which the first is, and they're kind of related. The first is it seems to me sometimes that any conversation worth having is one where the emotional stakes are quite high, right? I think there's just a truth of like the human being in that. So if you're experiencing somebody's behavior is challenging, or if you're not getting what you want out of a team or an individual or whatever, it's like, there may be, there may be a point where everybody's upset coming around the table in the first place. And I don't, I'm not sure that most of us, and perhaps you might see all of us really are as good at managing our emotions as we might like to think we are a lot of the time and a lot of our behavior and the way that we think and feel is hidden from our view it happens in our non-conscious minds and we don't know how and why we show up in the world in the way that we do and so it can be very hard for us to manage our own behavior so that's kind of part of answer number one part of answer number two i think flows from that which is we're not terribly good therefore at listening <laughs> because actually what happens is we're just walking around kind of like projecting our own stuff into every situation because we don't quite know what's you know what's really going on because we're just so lost in our own kind of you know mental models and scripts and all that non-conscious stuff so i'm like we're just not good at listening so so you know any any we, we talk about communication in work and we talk about wanting to communicate with dignity and respect well that starts with being able to hear right and and we're not good at listening my learned friend claire talks about this better than i do but talks about how most people are in campaign mode in organizations, not in conversation mode. You know, that people listen to, to, to work out when they can interject in the hope that they're proven right, rather than actually listening to meaningfully engage. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me to be the root of, root of most conflicts. And, I, and mm -hmm. I think in there somewhere is at least part of the answer as to why we're not terribly good at this, you know. And I just build on that because I think you've just touched on something for me, which is there is a threat in addressing conflict mm -hmm. to the person who wants to address it, which mm -hmm. is this. We love to be right as human beings and either consciously or subconsciously, there is a threat known that if you engage in this conversation, your version of events, your rightness could be challenged and questioned and people don't like voting for that that people like it's part of how we remain grounded and confident in ourselves like believing we're right that we've seen the reality of the situation makes us feel safe so it's actually quite unsafe I think mm -hmm. the other aspect I think it's a really complicated set of reasons I think the other aspect of it is it has become somehow and I think this does cross lots of different cultures labeled unkind to tell people they've done something wrong and nobody wants to be known as an unkind person apart from sociopaths and psychopaths you know they're in their own little camp um some of them sit at the top of some major organizations but you know in the round generally people want to be liked they it, it can pose a threat to belonging mm -hmm. so I think there are some real sort of important foundations of who we are as human beings that are at risk in conflict conversations and then the final really practical one is very few people who are leaders got into their work to be leaders yeah right it's right. not innate in people and actually the quality of leadership development out there is really varied it's like take them out of the business for two days plonk them back in so I think basic skills and capabilities to have these emotional challenging conversations are not present for a lot of leaders and, and actually that's unkind to them that actually we don't set leaders and managers up to be able to navigate this stuff yeah a hundred percent I think I've been thinking a lot lately about middle management and mm -hmm. you know most people are promoted because you know you're a good engineer, so now you're in charge of the engineering section. Not because you have people skills, not because of all of these so-called soft skills, which are really vital to having a healthy yeah. work environment, like vital. Mm -hmm. And it isn't something that you go to a session on. These are habits. I believe that these mm -hmm. skills of leadership for most people are just skills to be learned. You don't sit at the piano and all of a sudden you play it. You have to practice and practice and practice. Absolutely. And it takes a long time. 
And Claire, mm-hmm. as you said, it's not a silver bullet. I do the same thing. I, I do conflict um, training and people are in there. They're like, okay, this is great. And about halfway through, they're like, mm, I'm not quite sure. And by you know two thirds or three fourths the way through, they're like, absolutely not. I'm not doing that. That's too hard. And I get that. And (laughs) what I want to say is, yes, of course, you're not doing that right now, but we got to start somewhere. And it is, we're just so used to watch this video, do this little thing, and you've got it. And it's not, it is a marathon Mm -hmm. for your entire trajectory. And you Mm -hmm. can practice it at the grocery store. You can practice it everywhere, but it is conscious, reflective, beginning with the person and really empowering all leaders, managers, and expecting them this continual development because, yeah, we're just hanging them out to dry. You know, you do this job, but we're not going to give you the people skills. I think it's also, is it not about, and I think you alluded to this, Mary, and what you were just saying, it's a a process that actually begins with self-understanding as much as anything else. You know, the other thing about conflict is, what I find difficult might be different to what you find difficult. So for example, you can't have creativity without conflict, right? Because of the career that I guess I've had, and I think this is true of Claire as well, we can get into some very, very direct, pretty well, actually very robust conversations with each other about what we're doing creatively on a project or what we're doing with our practice or anything like that. And I don't think it would even register for Claire. It certainly doesn't register for me as conflict in any meaningful sense, right? We work with designers, we work with writers, all the rest, and they're the same, right? We can get into really quite what other people would think of as being arguments that we don't experience as arguments. We experience it as a process, but then put me for example into a situation in which I am required to give feedback to somebody about their behavior and I would find that a conflict-ridden situation in a way that one of our clients for example is entirely comfortable in that situation but put her into a creative environment and suddenly she's literally like the cat on a hot tin roof and finding the whole thing really uncomfortable and really difficult So it's like what we each experience is difficult and that's just situational, but what we experience is difficult varies from person to person. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something also about when we're in a conflict situation, our stuff is being triggered a lot of the time. So our own, whether it's stuff we've experienced in our personal lives or whether it's stuff that's happened to us at work previously, or whether it's just by virtue of personality or whatever it is that we find we find difficult, all that's being triggered. So being able to actually understand how to work with that is the job of being able to understand how to work with yourself. I think there's, um, without getting Buddhist on you, um, there's, a, there's a sort of exercise that Buddhist monks do that I think is really interesting, which is they sit on hard stone floors and meditate for hours and hours and hours and hours. And the idea is behind that is it's deeply, deeply uncomfortable, right? Physically really uncomfortable, but you're not allowed to leave because what it's teaching you to do is put distance between yourself and your own discomfort in that moment. The idea being you can sort of detach from the discomfort in a way. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that. What's going on within us in a conflict situation? How do we understand that? How do we to the extent we ever can master that and then work from that place and knowing, well, this is where we are at emotionally. How can I hold the space in which I can listen to you, engage with you, and then hopefully find a way of working through where we're at? Yeah, absolutely. I think that when you're helping people to deal with conflict or coming alongside them, I think one of the, the biggest tools that people can use is the time before, the preparing making space oh, for yourself, absolutely. dealing with your emotions, you know, nonviolent communication mm-hmm. and thinking about, all of that so that you can there i think there is a time and place to detach so that you can talk about the situation emotions are obviously very important you don't know what the other person is going to be coming in with but to really quiet yourself and figure out specifically what is the specific issue that you want to discuss and how are you going to show up and really preparing so that you can go in and be open so to have a conversation with mm-hmm. that other one of my missions, I think. My biggest mission is to normalize conflict, that conflict isn't the problem. Conflict is normal. 
So we need to deal mm-hmm. with it. And conflict is actually good. It's, it's a good sign, um, as you said, with creativity. A conflict is a sign that people are engaged. It's the unmanaged conflict. Claire and Phil, this has been so delightful. I feel like I could talk to you <laughs> at, for a very long time. <laughs> but before we depart, uh, I like to ask, what is your vision for healthy work environments? If you see, you know, in 10 years, what do you think needs to happen so that we can have these healthier work environments where people are not only treated with dignity and respect, but uh, encouraged to thrive? I'm going to answer this question in, in a probably a typically fairly abstract way. And then Claire and Dowsley will land a far more practical point, which is generally how these things work. But um, I would say <laughs> I would say this, which is the way that we have work set up is wrong. We think about work in a fundamentally 20th century way, which is to say we think of it as being factories, mechanics, robots, optimize. So in other words, you think about the language of business. A lot of it is about improving performance and optimization and you know and 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 this idea that even time motion studies management consulting all comes from the idea of human being as unit of productivity right and that somehow what we need to do is optimize that and so our conception is wrong because our conception is based on like the idea of uniformity at work and and I think in all, if you were to wind forward 10 years, 20 years, in my head, work needs to be about the human being as irreplaceable, authentic, natural, talented, passionate, engaged individual. And how do we build systems of work that actually acknowledge that? And I think a lot of the debates that are going on, which are about hybrid working and around how do we work with Gen Z and all those kind of debates that we're having now in work and conflict at work and resilience at work and all of that is fundamentally part of a much bigger picture, which is how are we starting to build work environments that actually allow the human being to flourish rather than treating the human being as a robot in a factory that just needs to be optimized. So, so my sense is a lot of these conversations that happen around like trends at work are actually a grasping towards a very different future, which is about allowing the human being to flourish. And I think conflict and surfacing difference and surfacing difficult and uncomfortable stuff sometimes is all part of that bigger picture. I love that. I hope that is the vision of the future. Claire, what what do you think? So I would absolutely agree with that. I think I would rewind to childhood and I, I would love to see education systems that raise people with a sense of collective, the need for collective success, the ability to collaborate, the ability to creatively problem solve together so that when we enter the world of work, we are absolutely completely aware of how interdependent we are on one another for success. One of the things I really struggle with in organisations is it perpetuates this sense that your success comes first. And I think it's a big driver of a lot of a lot of conflict. So I would love us to evolve back really, really back to a place where we had a stronger understanding of collaboration, connection, collective responsibility for success. I think that would be a really great starting point to drive a different energy into the world of work over the next 20 years. And then I think it's for me, it's really about organisations being crystal clear on what is the work that really needs to be done here in order for us to achieve our goals. And because we sat, we, we did some podcasts, uh, sorry, some webinars through COVID and there was this one amazing woman who said, if I get one more email about an effing yoga session, I'm going to scream. I just need somebody to help me work out how to prioritize. And it was such an insightful comment because I think what the world of the future of work needs to help people do is feel grounded as possible and connected to what their utility is. 
So the collective responsibility we have towards one another with a clarity of what is it that it's going to take to achieve success for me would lead to a, a, a world of work where there was a calmer state that we all engage from. And actually, when even when conflict arises, if you know it's anchored to something that you collectively need to do together, you can navigate against that anchor as opposed to just working at the level of who's right, who's wrong. So it's not as erudite as Phil's answer, but for me, there would be some practical things I would be love to see start happening in the world of work. Oh, gosh, I love both of your answers so much. Claire Adville, thank you so much for being on Conflict Managed. I really enjoyed chatting with you both. Thank you so much for having us. Claire and Phil, I so enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for taking your time to be on Conflict Managed today. I certainly benefited from the conversation, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. My new book, How to Be Unprofessional at Work, Tips to Ensure Failure, looks at 80 tips of what not to do at work in order to bring in a healthy work environment and to develop as professionals. How to Be Unprofessional at Work is now available on Amazon. I'm very glad that you've joined us today on Conflict Managed. We are a weekly podcast every Tuesday. If there's someone you would like to see interviewed, reach out at 3pconflictrestoration at gmail.com. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time. Take care.